1 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 to 18. And this morning, as you uh, go to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 6, uh, we're going in a direction that I hadn't really planned on going. Originally, I had planned to talk about how God doesn't need a Savior and why that's such a comfort to us. And uh, while I still think that's clearly in the text, I think you'll see it there. Uh, I, th- I think I saw something else that's even more central to this text this week. I think it's, I saw it because I'm assuming it's even more needed for us right now. Uh, that is, I'm assuming the Holy Spirit was guiding me. Uh, that's my prayer. Anyway, uh, so this morning, God draws our attention to the Philistines who are struggling with suffering and exhaustion and fear as they face a plague of mice and tumors. Uh, now, we know, as we looked at last week, that this is because the God of Israel, Jesus, is opposing their idols so that they can face the truth that their so-called gods are dead and that they need to repent and have life in Christ. And last week, uh, I called this a severe mercy as Jesus uses a dark night of the soul to unsettle the hold that these idols have in their hearts and as he calls them to face the this difficult truth. Um, now, we all know that, but the Philistines, they don't know that. What the Philistines know is They are suffering, and they know that Jesus is responsible for their suffering. But what they don't know is if Jesus will ever turn and be forgiving and merciful. What they don't know is, is Jesus the kind of God who will respond to our suffering and be kind and forgiving? So in the Philistines this morning, I think we see a struggle that we all can have when God has us in a dark night of the soul to unsettle some idol in our life when we're faced with its uselessness and with our sins and with its with the ongoing pain associated with it with the suffering that this truth brings into our lives we wonder if jesus will ever be ready to show us mercy we wonder will jesus really be kind will he really be forgiving will he really respond to my cry will it reach heaven as the text ended last week the very end of chapter and so that he will relent and bring life and healing. My friends, God wants us to learn this morning that the answer to that question is yes. Yes, Jesus does hear. Jesus does respond. Jesus does bring life. Jesus does show mercy because these dark nights of the soul are not aimed at our death, but at our life. As Hosea 6 verse 1 says, one of my favorite passages in scripture, the Lord wounds in order to heal. He kills in order to make alive. So much about Jesus' character and his ways in the world and how we are called to respond to him, I think are connected in this text. I actually think it's a surprisingly beautiful text for something that has mice and tumors in it. Uh, I also think it's very timely. Uh, So let's read 1 Samuel 6, 1 to 18, and pray, and then we'll explore this more fully. 1 Samuel 6, starting in verse 1. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, and they said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, 
five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and the Pharaoh harden their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened only by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which were five golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. This farther reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, which does assure us that you hear us when we cry and that you show mercy. Father, we want to know the depth and the power of your mercy and even how we can participate in praying for that mercy to be uh, experienced in the world. But Lord, we know that uh, this will not be possible unless your spirit blesses your word to us. So Father, therefore, we ask that your spirit would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe your word. Uh, Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and may the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word, may it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week our text ended with Jesus uh, afflicting the Philistines with tumors and with an infestation of mice because, as I said, he was forcing them to face the hard truth that their god Dagon and all their hollow divinities that they had set up, that they were dead idols. And again, we call this the dark night of desolation, which, remember, is a tool that Jesus will use sometimes to force us to face the hard reality of the dead idols that are lodged in our hearts. But not just that, sometimes, in fact, most of the time, especially in the lives of God's people, Jesus will use the dark night of the soul, not just to make his face a hard truth of idolatry, but also as a way to perform surgery 
on our hearts so that he can remove this cancer of idolatry from them. Uh, but right now, the Philistines, they're not receiving surgery. They're facing the dark night of hard truths. Now, there are mice everywhere. Uh, they're eating the food. They're pestering. They're sleeping. They're infesting their homes. It's just so gross. And frankly, it's a little scary. Uh, I remember reading stories about the worker camps that Chinese immigrants were forced to live in when they were building the railroads across California. And the workers would talk about how there were so many mice that they could feel them crawling over them while they slept and how they would wake up to mice running underneath their shirts and in their pants and they'd be covered in their mess and how they would get sick from all the mice droppings, right? It's just filthy. That's what I see when I read about this plague of mice. It's not annoying. It's disgusting. It's awful. It steals your sleep. It steals your health. And then you have on top of that the tumors and the deaths that these tumors are causing. So the Philistines are living with this fear of disfigurement and death and disease and sleeplessness. This is a very frightening time. It's a very hard time. And our text tells us in verse 1 that they endured this for seven months. And then they finally decide that there needs to be a change and that the ark has to go back. So they call their priests and their diviners. And diviners were people who could supposedly determine the will of a god. Uh, and they asked their priests and they asked the diviners, verse 2, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us what we, with what we shall send it to its place. Now it's that second sentence that's actually very telling. Tell us with what we should send it to its place. They're asking here, how do we ask Jesus to stop this and to heal us? This question is actually very similar to other people's uh, in the Bible, when they're seeking help from a source that they're not sure will give it. It actually has echoes of when uh, Joseph's family is uh, thinking about going back to Joseph before they know that Joseph is actually the ruler of Egypt. And they're like, with what shall we send, with what gift shall we send uh, to this man in Egypt so he treats us well? Because we're not sure if he's going to respond with mercy or with hardship. Uh, how shall we send this back in a way that will end this? How do we purchase this help? How do we show that we're serious? How do we get Jesus on our side? And we know that that's exactly what was heard because the diviners and the priests of the Philistines, they give a very intriguing response. Verse 3, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then... You will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. So for those of you who don't know, uh, a guilt offering was a part of the Old Covenant ceremonial law. Uh, and uh, while the Bible doesn't use these terms, I think a helpful way to distinguish a guilt offering from a regular sin offering is this. A guilt offering was not given for moral failure. It was given for religious failure. A guilt offering was a way for someone to acknowledge that they had mistreated the Lord by treating him or something of him as common. That could be something like mistreating the ark, as clearly was the case here, or by mistreating a sacrifice, or even by making one of God's people unclean and thus preventing them from being able to enter the temple. It's a way to acknowledge that one has been disrespectful to Jesus or careless in the way that that person has treated 
Jesus or his people. It's not the same thing as a sin offering. So a guilt offering was a way to say to Jesus, I am sorry for mistreating you. I'm sorry for not respecting you. I'm sorry for being inconsiderate toward those you love. Would you please forgive me? So the priests are saying here, if you send the ark away, send it away with an acknowledgement of guilt. Tell Jesus that you're sorry for treating him with contempt. Tell him you're sorry for trying to make him into just another idol in your hall of divinities that you put next to Superman and Batman and whatever, and Marvel heroes, because those exist, I think. Um, I just picked a fight with someone in the congregation. They'll talk to me later. Uh, show him, and you're going to give him this guilt offering. You're going to show him you're repenting by giving him five golden tumors and five golden mice. Uh, now, why do they suggest such a frankly gross guilt offering? Uh, that is a super good question. I have an answer. Uh, now, this is the best scholarly answer currently available. It's not guaranteed to be right, but it's most likely right. So here's the answer. It looks like ancient kings during this particular time would make gold statues of the kings that they defeated to keep in their uh, throne rooms as trophies. So it seems like the Philistines are being told, send the ark home with trophies. Acknowledge your defeat. Acknowledge Jesus's power. Acknowledge that you were wrong to think you could beat him and control him and make him fit your mold. Send him home with the trophies that display his power over you and over his gods, and then maybe Jesus will forgive us. Because after all, we're smarter than the Egyptians, right? They hardened their hearts. They suffered even greater losses only to eventually give God what he wanted anyway. Why would we go through that? Like, let's just send him on his way with these trophies as a guilt offering and we will be healed. That will get us relief. Surely God will forgive us. Surely he will be kind to us if we, if we do that. Just like they said in verse 3, then you will be healed. Maybe. Uh, that brings us to our second point, which is the test. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but the priests and the diviners, as I just quoted, they were positive that this would work until they weren't, right? It's amazing to see them shift in their confidence. If we send Jesus a guilt offering, we will be healed. And they shift from that to, actually, maybe we should make a test about this. Maybe this won't work. I mean, this is such a human thing. If you read through the text again, you'll see that they do things that we do all the time. This will totally work. There's no way this can fail. Probably. I mean, let's hope, let's hope it. Let's hope it works because I guess it could totally fail. You know what? We should test it and see if it's going to fail or not. Right? That's, they're, they're, that is what they are experiencing. Now, I, I want to talk about this test in a second, but first, I think it's just important to reflect on why there is a sudden change in confidence. And here's what I want to suggest to you. Uh, the Philistines are beaten down, and they are in tremendous pain, and they are very much afraid. There's suffering, there's hardship. This is a dark night of the soul. And while they think they see a way out through the mercy of Jesus, it suddenly dawns on them, what if there isn't? What if Jesus is not inclined to be merciful? Now, I know the, the way the text reads, 
in this test, it sounds like they're suddenly doubting if Jesus is the cause of the text, but I think that's actually a bad reading. This is not my favorite translation, and that's for three reasons. One is, here's the first re reason I think this is a bad reasoning. One is, they've been absolutely certain that it is the God of Israel who has caused this up to this point. If you read chapter 5, if you read up to here in chapter 6, there is no debate that Jesus has caused the tumors and the mice. They know who's doing it. The second reason that's a bad reason is when they talk about knowing, quote, if it was the Lord who has done this, this, us this great harm, that phrase appears in places like Exodus and Numbers when Israel is trying to figure out why Jesus is suddenly opposing them. Why have we suddenly been defeated in battle? Why have we been, uh, why have we been brought out here without food? So in this case, I think the most clear way to translate that word if, given that it's referencing these other phrases, is actually why, which is also a possibility. You see, it's not a question if Jesus is behind this or not, but why Jesus is behind this or not. And that brings me to my third reason, which is based on the final phrase we translated as by coincidence. Has this come from his hand or by coincidence or better by chance or even better by capriciousness? I think they're suddenly worried that Jesus is an erratic, unstable, arbitrary deity. I think they're afraid that Jesus is capricious and capricious kids means to make a sudden change in mood or behavior. It means uh, someone randomly decides without any reason or any warning to be nice or to be mean. And you never know when they're going to change again. One minute they're saying, I like you. The next minute they're yelling at you. And you don't know what happened other than that, like the wind blew. That's what capriciousness is. You see, if God is responding to something we've done, if it's his hand that is against us, which is always a phrase in scripture that describes God responding to the world, then maybe we can be forgiven. Maybe this guilt offering will help. But if it's God just being capricious and doing whatever he wants to do, then what hope do we actually have? Then we just have to wait and hope that he randomly decides to be nice again. So they come up with this test, which is a test not about determining if Jesus is responsible for this or not. No, this test is to determine the character of the God who is responsible. Is Jesus forgiving? Or is he capricious, arbitrary, erratic, and cruel? So quickly, the test they come up with is to take two milk cows and strap them to a cart while leaving their calves at home. And I don't know much about cows, uh, but from what I've read and what I've been told, a cow's natural instinct will be to go back to their nursing calf. And so the test is, if the cows go back home in search of their calves, Jesus isn't responding to our guilt. He's just being me. But if the cows go off to Israel, then maybe Jesus is responding to our guilt, and maybe we can be forgiven. And I think this is actually a pretty ingenious test myself. And I just want to highlight that what is at stake in this test is their hope for forgiveness and healing and relief. What is at stake is what kind of relationship with Jesus might be possible and what kind of life with Jesus can possibly be lived in in this world. See, at stake is a question of character, to put it bluntly, 
Is Jesus a jerk who just does mean things sometimes? Or is Jesus responsive and forgiving and merciful and compassionate? That's the point. That's the point. And I put it that starkly, is Jesus a jerk or is he responsive and merciful? Because how many of us fear that maybe we serve a God who just sometimes does random things for no reason? How many of us have said, not as a joke, but as a warning, no good deed goes unpunished? Because we're afraid, and what's behind that statement is we're afraid that Jesus at his core does not really bless obedience or respond positively to our positive actions, but just does whatever he wants regardless of our actions and circumstances. So obedience, good deeds, they're not really worth it because all it does is draw God's attention. When you have God's attention, that's when bad things happen. We have this view of God that he has one hand out in blessing and another one curled behind his back ready to hit us. I still remember a sermon I heard back in Washington from a visiting pastor who was talking about Timothy and uh, the fears that Timothy had about um, ministry and suffering. And this pastor said that Timothy had to learn, and this is a quote, you'll remember this, sometimes the will of God will flay your bones. And I remember thinking, what? <laughs> like, do we know the same Jesus? I think we do. What is happening? Are we reading the same Bible? That kind of theology where Jesus responds to our fears with, hey, you're welcome. Here's some more. I hope you enjoy it. Like that is not biblical, healthy, gospel-centered, Jesus-centric, gracious Theology, that is not a God who is compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. But that is what the Philistines are testing. Is Jesus the kind of God who, when he finally pays attention to you, might just decide to flay your bones? Or is he the kind of God who responds to the cries that reach to heaven, who responds to confession, who relents from disaster, who acts with mercy, who even comforts the broken. And that brings us to our final point, which is the sacrifice, which I think is the coolest part of this whole sermon. Um, so what happens, of course, is the cart and the cows, they go straight to Israel. And the text says that the cows load as they went, which I take to be kind of acting like trumpets that are heralding the arrival of the king back into his kingdom. Now notice that the lords of the Philistines, they follow the cart all the way to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now no one knows where that border was exactly, but we can tell from the text that the Philistine lords were far enough away that they didn't fear being attacked, but they were close enough so they could stand there and pay attention to what happens next. And I want you to put a pin in that because I, I want you to notice that while these Philistines looked on, the people of Israel rejoiced that the Ark of God came back. And I want you to notice that the Ark goes up to this great stone, which is biblically reminiscent of the stone that Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac on. And the trophies get placed on that stone. That's verse 15. And then we're told, surprisingly, that there are some Levites in Beth Shemesh. Levites, just so you know, were in charge of the sacrifices for Israel. And these Levites, they take the cart and they make an altar out of it. And on that altar, they offer the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And now they were probably offering that, 
the offering as a thanksgiving offering. But what's interesting is that thank offerings, thanksgiving offerings, and guilt offerings, they were given in very similar ways, though with two important differences. The two differences were the reason the animal was given, because both involved cows or sheep, and the role of the Levite. In the guilt offering, the Levite offers it up on behalf of the person. In the thank offering, the person offers it up themselves with the help of the Levite. The Philistines sent the bulls out of guilt, and the Levites sacrificed the bulls on the altar. So what I see happening here is that the Levites are completing the guilt offering that the Philistines have sent. They are making the sacrifice that Jesus calls for to repent, for treating him with contempt. They are standing in the gap between God's response and their sin. And they, though I think unknowingly to them, but certainly known to Jesus, are interceding for the Philistines. And the Philistine lords see this. They see the trophies on the stone. They see the offering. And that's why verse 16, we read, And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Why did they stand and watch that whole thing? Because they needed the answer to their question, Is Jesus capricious, arbitrary, and mean? Or is he responsive, reasoned, and merciful? And when they saw the sacrifices being made by the Levites on an altar with their guilt offering, they had their answer and they went home, one would assume with hope that Jesus would relent and even be kind to them. Now with all that, I want to end with two things here. I want to bring this to a close with two things. The first is clearly the point of God, including this in our Bible, in his word to us, as an abiding testimony and witness from generation to generation, is to teach us that Jesus is responsive and that he responds with mercy to those who seek it. He responds with mercy even to people like the Philistines who did not make anything like full repentance, right? They didn't confess all their sins. They didn't confess saving faith, but still Jesus showed them kindness and taught them through their own dark night of the soul, that he looks with compassion on those who acknowledge their guilt. Jesus relents from disaster. And if Jesus will do that even for the Philistines, beloved, how much more will he do that for us? How much more will he show us compassion and respond to our repentance? Jesus is not arbitrary. He's not capricious. He's not mean. He is responsive, he listens, he pays attention, he is good, he is kind, he is merciful, and we need to have our hearts shaped by a vision of that God who even hears the cries of the Philistines and makes a way for them to have relief. And the second thing I want to point out is what the people of God did for the Philistines here, even though it probably was not intentional, it was still real. And it was still desired by Jesus, and we know that because Jesus orchestrated this whole thing. Why? What is it that they did? 
they interceded for their enemies. They prayed for the healing of their afflictors. They showed the Philistines love by standing in the gap between Jesus' justice and their sins. And doesn't that sound like Jesus' own commands to us? What does he tell us in the Sermon on the Mount? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. Here I think we see a subtle but very powerful portrayal of what exactly that means when your enemies, when your persecutors, when your annoyers, your frustrators, your botherers, uh, when you see them suffering, when you see them seeking a response from God, even a God they do not know, needing relief, ask Jesus to give it to them. Pray for those who persecute you. And bless those who curse you, right? So if they ask you, can Jesus give even me mercy? What do we say? Yes! Jesus will always respond with kindness and mercy to those who seek it because that is the God that he is. Actually, let me end with a third thing. Um, my friends, clearly one of the things I think Jesus also wants us to see in the dark night of the soul is a clearer vision of his responsiveness and his mercy and his compassion. Jesus does not want us to feel like we need to test his character. Beloved, Jesus wants us to know in the deepest part of our hearts and in our bones, which he does not flay, our character, which is his responsiveness, his attentiveness, his mercy, his love, and his unbelievable, overwhelming compassion. That is what the God we serve looks like. That is how the God we serve acts. Our God looks like and acts like the God who died on the cross and who rose for our justification. That's why his name is Jesus, and that's why we delight in that name. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are a God who loves us so much that you confront us about our idolatry. Uh, thank you for being with us even when that confrontation is difficult and hard. Thank you for being just and righteous and good and wise. And thank you especially for being a responsive God who hears us and meets us with mercy and with the kindness of Jesus. Father, please help us to trust in your goodness. Please help us to pray for one another to know your goodness. And please don't let us leave here this morning without believing that you are always attentively working all things for our good because of the upward call in Christ Jesus so that we can pray for those who persecute us, so we can bear witness to Jesus, so that we can know that our God in heaven hears and responds and shows compassion and has already shown this for us most especially in Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing in response to number 562, All to Jesus I Surrender. Thank you.